are grateful. So grateful to you. Lord, thank you for calling us here to fellowship and to worship you and to put you in your proper place this morning. Lord, now open our hearts and our, and our minds to receive what you have to say to us as we open the Holy Scriptures this morning. And as usual, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak through me, and it would be as if this morning Jesus Christ were standing behind this pulpit. And may we hear his words, and may we be transformed into a more perfect image of Jesus Christ as you, Holy Spirit, work in us to perfect the very character of Jesus Christ in our lives. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Take a seat. Get your Bibles out. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I think that's even the, the first slide, I believe. That's the wrong one up there, by the way. But that's okay. We'll get it right. I totally, the morning was messed up with the, what happened to the computer. And, and you know, thank Frank and Dave Doyle. They, they came this morning and got it, the computer fixed. I got the PowerPoint done, and then I forgot to put it up. And um, so, you know, it was just one of those things. So, but Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. There we go. See how quick Joe is? Matthew 5, 33 through 37. Get your phones or your tablets or your Bibles out. All right. Again, this is Bible chapel. We're going to get into what the Bible says. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false Vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. And of course, we now know that we can make our hair white or black. It's called what, Clairol or Grecian Formula 44 or whatever it is, you know. So, but it, wasn't, it didn't exist at that time. So, well, I want to begin, believe it or not, with Elise Hauser this morning. Friday night, Elise spent the night at her house with Lydia. And when Elise is over, we almost always watch the 2003 version of Pride and Prejudice. He says, I can't believe this pastor who loves sports so much is watching Pride and Prejudice, but we do. But there is one line in particular that's become a running joke in our family. The main, you ever seen that, the, the Kira Knightley version of that 2003? Uh, okay, all of you stink except for those that raised your hands. Okay, educate yourselves, get culture. Anyway, I'm joking with you. Anyways, the main characters in the movie are Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth Bennet. And by the way, I have to watch these, these movies because we rotate a chick flick with an action flick. That's how our marriage has stayed so strong because it's not all action flicks and it's not all romance movies. And so it was like, I gutted out the first Pride and Prejudice. And you know, I love my wife. We were first married. What was that we used to watch? Anne of Green Gables. I about died. <laughs> It didn't end. It was a never-ending story on and on and on and on and on. Oh. Lima beans and a green gables. I mean, they are about at the same level. Okay? Right below that is, is, is like heart surgery or something like that. So, anyways, the main character in Pride and Prejudice, the two main characters are Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth Bennett. Now, the scene takes place in a tavern where Mr. Darcy is, is talking to Elizabeth's uncle and aunt. And as he leaves, Elizabeth arrives at the table, and the aunt remarks that they were just talking to Mr. Darcy. And she says this, there's something pleasant about his mouth when he speaks. Now, you can laugh if you want, because like, no one talks like that anymore. If they ever did in the first place. 
I have been at Bible Chapel for almost five years, and I can confidently say that no one in my house, or in this church for that matter, will ever say about me, there's something pleasant about his mouth when he speaks. <laughs> in fact, you will, I will hear you say, I can't believe he said that, right? So, I've always wanted to work that in the sermon. I think we're talking about the speech and the mouth today and the tongue, so there we go. There's something, if you want to be in my good graces, when you leave and you see me up there and say, there's something pleasant about your mouth when you speak, that'll make my day, all right? <laughs> no, you don't have to do it with a straight face. You can lie between your teeth as long as you say that. And the way she says it, there's something pleasant about his mouth when he speaks. I'm like, get out of here. Jeez. Now, we're going to continue our study on the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to talk about, I'm going to give you a little bit of background here if this works. The Gospel of the King. Here we go. Now, Jesus has addressed our personal relationships in the area of murder or, or anger adultery and divorce. And now he's gonna to speak to us about our words or our speech. And since we spent the last month discussing divorce, I thought it would be helpful by way of reminder just to kind of look back at just some of the, the themes that run through the Gospel of Matthew. I mean, we've been in this series for a while, we can tend to forget, and context is always important. But just so you know, and as, if you didn't know, I'm reminding you, if you didn't know, I'm telling you, if you did know, I'm reminding you, that Matthew is the gospel of the king. It was written to a Jewish audience, and he was trying to convince them that Jesus was indeed their Messiah, the king. And in it, Matthew presents a story of salvation from the, from the perspective of Jesus uh, being the Messiah, the king. But he has a unique challenge, that is, Matthew does, because the audience he is writing to is Jewish, and he is attempting to convince them that they had executed their own Messiah, the king. So clearly they didn't believe he was the Messiah, the king. Now one way of understanding the Gospel of Matthew is to look at it through three kingly themes, because it's the Gospel of the king. And they run concurrently throughout his Gospel. For example, his Gospel begins with what we call the revelation of the king. And then that is the fact that his ancestry is traced from a royal line. And of course, he comes from who? David. His birth is feared by a rival king, Herod. Wise men offer him kingly honor and royal gifts. A royal Herod proclaims his coming. Satan acknowledges his kingliness. How? Well, he offers him what? The kingdom, exactly. At his temptation. His miracles are his royal, royal credentials. His parables are called the mysteries of what? His kingdom. Remember that? He is hailed as the son of King David. He makes a royal entry into Jerusalem. Remember the triumphal entry? Claims sovereignty. Concerning himself, he tells the story of a king's son. While facing death on the cross, he predicts his future reign. He claims the power to command the legion of angels. Only a king can do that. And his last words are a kingly claim. All authority is given to me, and a royal command, go therefore and make disciples. That's the revelation of the king. That runs throughout Matthew. Matthew's gospel continues with what we call the rejection of the king. His mother was in danger of being rejected by her own husband. At his birth, Herod, the king, sought to kill him because of his threat to him as king. For the first 30 years of his life, he was forced to live in obscurity where he knew no honor, even though he was a king. His forerunner was imprisoned and beheaded. He himself had nowhere to lay his head. His parables indicated that his kingdom would not be accepted in his own time. And boy, we've seen that. And on the cross, he cried out what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, the rejection of the king. Those who pass by his cross in Matthew's gospel, they mock and revile and jeer him. Even the soldiers are paid to lie about his resurrection. That's the rejection of the king. The revelation of the king, right? Rejection of the king. 
And now we get to, if you like the Lord of the Rings, the return of the king. All through Matthew, there's a focus on a day coming when the king will reign. Two chapters, Matthew 24 and 25, I believe, uh, attest to this. No other gospel, look at Mark, Luke, John, no other gospel lays so much emphasis on the second coming in the gospel of Matthew. Now, that's kind of a, just a general overview of three themes that run throughout the gospel of the king, the gospel of Matthew. Now, with that in mind, as we look at the first five chapters of Matthew, we find that his gospel begins with the credentials of the king. I'm going to take you through these first five chapters to, so you get the, the background and, and to trace the line of thinking of Matthew. It starts with his ancestry from a royal line in chapter 1. That is followed by, in chapter 2, it details the arrival of the king by way of a supernatural conception and birth, visiting magi who worship and bring kingly gifts, and there's further evidence of his kingly credentials through fulfilled prophecies and persecution. Chapter 3 introduces the herald of the king, John the Baptist, who is an eyewitness to the affirmation of the king at his baptism. And chapter 4 tells of the king defeating his enemy, Satan, at his temptation, and the actions of the king now that he has the advantage. What happens after the temptation? He goes and begins his ministry, and it's a ministry of what? Miracles. He teaches authority, but there are miracles that follow him. And finally, we come to chapter 5. And we find for the first time, the king is addressing his subjects. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. A king speaking to his subjects. Now, we don't think that way, but that is true. He is our king, and we are his subjects. Now, his address is in the form of a sermon, and what is he doing in the Sermon on the Mount? He's laying out his standards for his kingdom. And one unique feature of, his ser of this sermon is that it begins with a focus on the character of a subject of his kingdom before any action is taken. Do you remember that sermon? Our Lord knows that we live from the heart, and the heart must be right so that the action can be right. Being before doing. It's a clear emphasis. So the character of a subject of his kingdom consists of one who understands, you remember all the Beatitudes, they're spiritually bankrupt, they rarely confess their sin, gentle, hunger and thirst for righteousness, not their own, merciful, pure in heart, peacemaking, endure persecution for the sake of righteousness. These are the qualities or the character of life that his kingdom requires. And he's better be in your life because it shows that you're part of his kingdom. And by living this kind of life, you become what? Salt of the earth, the light of the world. In that life, it's not for your happiness, although you will experience happiness. That life points to God. You see, he was glorified. And he's glorified through your deeds, your good deeds. And what we just went over briefly, we've gone over in depth the last few months, it's a completely counterculture lifestyle. It does not make sense. It is not understood by this world. And what I want you to see is that the Sermon on the Mount is the antithesis of everything that Judaism was at that time, and it is also the antithesis of every other world religion so that makes this sermon relevant today. Now, how is it so different? Well, this sermon unmasks the religion of human achievement and establishes in its place the religion of divine accomplishment. Do you got that? The scribes and the Pharisees, they were a legalistic sect of Jews who, through tradition, rabbinical teaching had created kind of this substandard religious religion based on human effort and had convinced themselves that they were good with God through self-righteous acts. But the truth of the matter is, is that through spiritual pride, they simply did not desire to go to God to receive grace for salvation. 
And I've seen that play out when I share my faith with people. They would rather try and do it on their own than surrender to God. And you probably have experienced that too. That distance from here to here is, is the longest, farthest and hardest trip anyone will ever take because it requires a surrendering of yourself. People want to obtain eternal life by themselves. And folks, that is every other world religion except Christianity. But because God's standards have always been unattainable, apart from divine help, what do we do and what did they do? We give up and we create a new religion by lowering the standards, right? Even though they were given God's standards, that is the Jews, in the law of Moses, through moral disintegration over time in their history, the Jews had descended far away from God's law. And what was being taught to the people was not God's law. So Jesus corrects their error in the Sermon on the Mount. And let me try to explain to you again. This was a bold, confrontational, and direct way in his very first address to his subjects. You would have been, if you were raised in that time, and listened to the sermon, you would have been shocked. It would have been a, a jaw-dropping sermon. You would have looked around and said, I can't believe he's saying this. You would not say, there's something pleasant about his mouth when he speaks. Okay? So I want you to understand, this is not the picture we have of Jesus sitting on the hillside, holding a child in a... In a and so a lamb, and then talking to the people, and everyone's smiling. I mean, this was direct. He's a king, and he is speaking, and he's speaking with authority. And Jesus, and this happens anytime, you know this is going to be confrontational. Whenever you challenge self-righteousness and self-righteous standards, there's going to be conflict. And he challenges their self-righteous standards in the area of personal relationships. See, the people thought they were righteous if they never committed the act of murder. But Jesus says what? You're a murderer if you've ever been angry with anyone. They thought they were righteous if they never committed the physical act of adultery. But Jesus says, you're an adulterer if you ever lusted after a woman. They thought they were righteous if they just gave their wife a written certificate of divorce. They did all the paperwork. But Jesus says, if you divorce for any reason other than adultery, you make her commit adultery, and you commit adultery if you remarry. In doing so, Jesus is hoping to show them their need for a savior from their sin, and that he is the very savior that they need. And it will help you immensely as we make our way through this sermon, if you can understand this point. It was so important that I put it up here, that this is the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. Chapters 5, 6, and 7, this is the whole purpose. It's to convince people of their sinfulness and to show them the hopelessness of a religion of human achievement attaining God's standard of righteousness. It simply can't be done. Think about it. What is the very first characters, the very first words that came out of his mouth in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are who? Poor in spirit, which means What? I recognize my spiritual bankruptcy. I realize I can't earn God's favor by my own. And what theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. You remember when we would, in English class or language arts, you have to dissect a paragraph, and you learn that everything is kind of set by that first sentence. It's kind of the theme is laid out. Well, that's the same with Jesus. Now, there are two verses in Matthew chapter 5. In fact, you can go there since you're there in your Bibles that clearly imply the people's need for a Savior. Look at verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, if you were in that crowd at that time, your jaw would have dropped because the scribes and Pharisees were the standard of righteousness in the eyes of people. They looked up to them. They tried to attain to be like them. And Jesus says, that's not good enough. It would have blown your mind away. But what is God's standard of righteousness? Well, look at verse 25. It's perfection. Therefore, you are to be what? 
perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. But who can attain perfection on their own? Nobody. And that's the point. We need help from another source other than ourselves. And that help from another source is their king, Jesus. And Jesus now begins to challenge their self-righteousness in the area of their speech in his Sermon on the Mount. And in essence, he is telling them, you think you're telling the truth? But I'm telling you, you're nothing but a group of liars. And it would, again, it would have taken people back. And I want to begin, though, with talking about what I call a world of lies. I think this will help you understand what Jesus is saying. So when we come to this particular portion of his sermon, and we read what Jesus is saying about oaths or vows, I have, and my guess is you have too, we tend to fail to see the relevance of this passage to our lives. I mean, how often do we make an oath to the Lord in our normal conversations, right? And in everyday speech. How often do we swear by a capital city or by the hair in our head? And obviously, I can't even do that. I have no hair in my head. So we just don't speak that way in our culture like they did at the time of Jesus. However, whenever the Bible talks about what we say, we should pay attention. Because as James reminds us, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is what? A perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. And since we're called to perfection, right? You must be perfect. Do you have any fathers perfect? And I'm called to perfection as a subject of Jesus' kingdom. That verse, this section, should occupy our attention. And if you've had perfected the tongue, then it implies that you've perfected the heart because for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But who's perfected the heart? Nobody. And again, a reminder to me, first and foremost, and to all of us, is that our words really are a thermometer of our hearts. But let me give you another reason why we need to take this section of his sermon seriously. We live in a world built on a foundation of lies. If you didn't know that already, you are going to know that this morning. When I remember that, that truth, that we live in a world based on a foundation of lies, I recall a scene from the HBO series Game of Thrones. One of the main characters is asked to lie about his allegiance. And remarkably, he refuses a request. And then the following lines were spoken. He was asked, have you ever considered learning how to lie every now and then, just a bit? To which he replies, I'm not going to swear an oath I can't uphold. Now listen to this. When enough people make false promises, words stop meaning anything. Then there are no more answers, and only better and better lies and lies. And lies won't help us in this fight. Very true words indeed. Isaiah reminds us rightly that when lies replace truth, then we live in a world where there is no justice and righteousness. Remember Isaiah 59, 14? I went over, I think, last July. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has what? Stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. What does that mean? Well, the result of that type of a world where truth has been abandoned, it's no longer in the streets, is that the world is turned upside down. Wrong becomes what? Right? And right becomes wrong. And I just described the world we live in, did I not? More than ever, our words need to mean something. And the truth is desperately needed today. Think about this. Wouldn't it be nice to live in a world where we know the truth on just about anything? Do you really feel you know the truth on, about anything in this world? See, we don't, and here's why. 
Satan has built this world on a foundation of lies. In fact, he cannot build a world system based on anything but lies because his very nature is to what? Lie. So consequently, there is no truth in him. Question for you, do you remember how Satan was introduced to the world? He lied to Eve in the Garden of Eden about the consequences of eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And do you remember his lie to her? This is the very first lie. The serpent said to the woman, you surely shall not die. A lie. Jesus called him the father of lies. Speaking to the Pharisees, Jesus said this, you are, the father, you are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now notice that Jesus speaks only of Satan as a liar, but also a father, meaning what? As a father, he has offspring that are just like him, and they're called liars. And lest we forget that all of us in this room, and all men and women who've ever been born, are liars. We are born liars. And to prove this, all we have to do is look at our children, right? I do not have to teach them how to lie. I have to teach them how to tell the truth. And look at our world in 2020, last year. We had a global pandemic due to COVID-19, capitalizing on a national hysteria. The media kept us in fear, feeding us what? Inflated infection rates and death statistics. Now, by a show of hands, how many of you believe you were lied to about COVID-19? This is the world we live in. Last year was an election year, which means it's time for the politicians to make promises they have no intention of keeping. Lying or misleading to get elected to a political office is just its the norm in today's political climate. An honest politician is a contradiction in terms. The words of Mrs. Doubtfire to Natalie ring true. I admire that honesty, Natalie. It's a noble quality. Never lose that because it often disappears with age or entering politics. <laughs> Public confidence in the media is to accurately report the facts. It's at an all-time low. It's, lay statistics is roughly 80% Americans do not trust what the media reports. Today's media is driven by political agendas, propagating lies rather than the pursuit of the truth. It is more important in today's media to be first to report news than to be right. Again, I go back to what Isaiah said, truth is in short supply. The extent of lies is staggering when you sit down and, and think about this. Everyone is in suspicion. Business people, salesmen, clerks, lawyers, doctors, advertisers, teachers, reporters, writers, politicians, and even pastors or preachers. Folks, we shade the truth, we cheat, we exaggerate, we fail to keep our promises, we flatter for gain, we betray confidence, make excuses, tell half-truths and white lies. And no one is disagreeing with me this morning. And so when you get to a courtroom, right? The place in our society to discover the truth, they make you do what? You raise your right hand, you place your other hand in the Bible, and right, you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God, right? And they even make a crime out of it, not telling the truth. What's it called? Perjury. And yet the truth is still scarce. Even in Jesus' audience were people who knew what the rabbis taught. This is what they taught. There are four things that shut a person out from the presence of God. Scoffing, hypocrisy, slander, and lying. And yet they were lying amongst themselves and had built a network of lies at the very time he was speaking to them. When you get married, you stand before a minister or justice of the peace, 
and make a promise and recite the vows, I take thee to be my wedded husband or wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part according to God's holy ordinance and thereby, thereby I pledge myself to you. And despite those words we recite, despite those promises we make, we just came off a four-part sermon series on divorce in which we were reminded that divorce rates are still skyrocketing. We break promises like we breathe air. You know what? We don't give it a second thought. It's even small things. Honey, would you take out the trash? Yeah, I'll do that. Two hours later, the wife is still taking trash out. I mean, we all do little things like that. It's the world we live in. That means, and this is why, making and keeping a promise, it's so powerful because you create an island of certainty in an ocean of uncertainty. Now, when Jesus arrived on the scene, the Jews were so good at breaking promises and lying that they didn't give it a second thought. And let's examine the rest of the time this morning. What does the Old Testament teach about vows or swearing or, or oaths, okay? Verse 33 of chapter 5. Again, you've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. For your information, that statement is not found in the Old Testament. Now, it's got an Old Testament roots. It came from their Jewish tradition. Again, it has Old Testament roots. As oaths, you need to know this, are part of the Old Testament. Now, by definition, an oath is a solemn promise, often invoking a divine witness, meaning God, regarding one's future actions or behavior. That's just its definition. And we do it when we say something like this. I swear to God it's the truth. That's what we say, right? And the best verse to give you a biblical definition of an oath is Hebrews 6.16. Just listen to this. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. Dispute. The verse is simply saying this. You have two people in conflict of some sort, and one promises to fulfill something that will resolve the conflict. In order to secure the confidence of the other person, he affirms the truth by calling God to be a witness. And even God, by the way, does this. The very next verse, Hebrews 6, 17, says this. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. So in other words, God wanted to accommodate men and show them that the unchanging character of his own promise also made an oath. And the Old Testament is filled with oaths made by God. You find it in phrases like this, as I live, says the Lord, I will, and then he goes on and says what he's going to do. He makes the promise. And the point is that God realizes Men are sinners, and sometimes they need an affirmation of their truthfulness. They need something fearful to bind them, to speak the truth in serious settings. So when God swears an oath, it emphasizes in the urgency and the significance of that which he has said, setting apart from other things he has said. It's like the statement, truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus talks, but when he says truly, truly, he's saying you better pay attention to this one. So swearing an oath is a serious matter in the Old Testament. Numbers 30, verse 2. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. So in other words, God says do this, and when you do it, mean it and keep it. It's that simple. We'd say this, your word is your what? Bond. Exactly. Now, making oaths in God's name should be done only for very special occasions. For example, when you're court of law or when you're getting married. We find in the Old Testament many occasions where people make, take, or make rash oaths. 
And here's a tragic example of a foolish and rash oath. Just listen to this from Judges 11, verses 30 and 35. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, if you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of Whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Verse 34. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter? Dancing to the sound of tambourines. She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh, my daughter. You have made me miserable and wretched because I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. And so he had to sacrifice his daughter to the Lord. A foolish and rash vow. So to sum up what the Old Testament teaches about oaths, God knows men are sinners, that the basic lying nature of men causes them to distrust each other. And in some situations, it will be necessary for oaths to be taken. And he allows for it. He himself doing it even by example. But making oaths in God's name should be reserved for very serious or special occasions. That's what the Old Testament teaches about oaths. But what we're dealing with in our world and what they were dealing with is the perversion of the Jewish tradition. What did these Jews teach in Jesus' day? Well, again, look at Matthew 5.33. It sounds good, right? But it's missing a few key elements. Let me show you by looking at Matthew 5, 33 and 34 again in the parallel passage in Matthew 23, 16 to 22. Look at Matthew Matthew 5, 33 through 36. Again, you've heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one here white or black. Here's a parallel verse. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. Whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? Whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. Whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. It's Matthew 23, 16 to 22. Well, first in Matthew 53, 533, this statement, it never told them when oaths were proper. Like, when do I make an oath? Of course, not knowing this, this led to this frivolous swearing of oaths. I mean, they were, (coughs) excuse me, swearing oaths for every little thing throughout the day and did it every day. Taking them as a common matter of conversation. It doesn't take much to imagine a conversation that went something like this. Excuse me for a second here. I swear and I keep my word to you. I swear by heaven and earth, I swear by my head, I swear by Jerusalem, I swear by the altar, I swear by the temple, I'll do it. Okay? Now, I would think, I think we would think, that that sounds pretty good, right? I probably would agree to whatever the other person or other party was swearing to. But then the other party just would go right out and not do it, not fulfill their word. That was the environment Jesus was addressing. Second element that was missing was found in the phrase, to the Lord. See that? Verse 33, to the Lord. As long as you swore to the Lord, you had to do it. But they didn't just swear to the Lord, did they? What else did they swear by? See them all there? Yeah. Yeah. But if you swore to anything else, you didn't have to do it. So what they were doing was swearing by heaven, earth, Jerusalem, their head, the altar, the temple, and so on. And of course, they would go right out and do just the very opposite. And they did this type of swearing of oaths 
or oath-making with no sense of guilt, by the way, because they didn't swear in the name of the Lord. So the result was they created this, this network of lies everywhere. Now, to make this relevant to our time, when I was a child, we all were children, and we would swear to do something, but if we had what? Our fingers crossed behind our backs, right? Remember that? We didn't have to keep our word. And that's kind of what they were doing. And this fit their sinful nature, because they are by nature what? Liars. Remember that their father was Satan, who is by nature a liar, and his offspring are liars. So naturally they wanted to lie, so they just fit their lies in a nice, comfortable category. If you didn't say in the Lord's name, you could lie and it was okay. That's how they twisted scripture. But Jesus has cut through all of those twisted lies. Verse 34, but I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Verse 36, nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, anything beyond these is of evil. You know what he's saying here? Stop swearing like that. You can't swear by heaven and avoid God. Why? That's his throne. You can't swear by earth and avoid God. That's his what? Footstool. You can't swear by Jerusalem and avoid him. That's the city of the great king. You can't swear by your head and avoid God. You can't make one here white or black. Only God, your creator, can. Because when you touch heaven, you touch God. When you touch earth, you touch God. When you touch Jerusalem, you touch God. When you touch your head, you touch God. Because he's all in all, right? You can't avoid God. See, God will not be compartmentalized. That's what they were doing. William Barclay said this, here's a great eternal truth, and it was about this passage. Life cannot be divided into compartments, in some of which God is involved, and in others of which he is not involved. There cannot be one kind of language in the church, another kind of language in the home. There cannot be one kind of standard of conduct in the church, another standard of conduct in the business world. The fact is that God does not need to be invited into certain departments of life and kept out of others. He is everywhere, all through life, and every activity of life. He hears not only the words which are spoken in his name, he hears all words. And there cannot be any such thing as a form of words which evades bringing God into any transaction. We will regard all promises as sacred if we remember that all promises are made in the presence of God. Leave it this way, if this helps you understand what I'm saying here. God does not exist like a male brain. Men can focus and accomplish tasks because we can compartmentalize. But that focus comes with a price. We can be oblivious to what's going on around us. In this sense, God is more like the female brain. It can focus, but though not as well as a man's brain, but it's also able to be aware of what is going on around it. And that's like God. I want you to make sure you see what Jesus is saying to the people about making these types of oaths. See, truth, it knows no degrees. Half-truths are whole lies. Both the Old and New Testament say that you're not to lie. Leviticus 19.11 and Colossians 3.9. And perhaps more than murder or adultery or divorce, the mouth separates the subject of Satan's kingdom and Jesus' kingdom. Now listen to this. Did you know this, that the wicked lie, or the unbelieving lie, starting at birth? Did you know that? Psalm 58.3. Even from birth, the wicked go astray. From the womb, they are wayward and speak lies. Again, the extent of the, of, of the corruption of the lying in the unbelieving world, in the world that Satan has created. The wicked and the hypocrites delight in lies. Psalm 62.4, they fully intend to topple him from his lofty place. They take delight in lies, and here's hip hypocrites. With their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. The world system, Satan's kingdom, 
teaches its inhabitants to lie, so therefore trust is fleeting. Jeremiah 9, 4 and 5. Beware of your friends, and this is an awful way to live, beware of your friends, do not trust your brothers, for every brother is a deceiver and every friend a slanderer. Friend deceives friend and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongues to lie. They worry themselves with sinning. False prophets lie, Jeremiah 23, 25. I have heard what the prophets say who prophesy lies in my name. They say, I had a dream, I had a dream. And people who abandon the faith lie, 1 Timothy 4, verse 1 and 2. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical what? Liars, whose conscience have been seared as with a hot iron. And what is the end of all liars? It's fire, Revelation 21.8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and adulterers and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Since they're just like their father, they act like their father, who is a liar, Satan. They share in his judgment. But Jesus says the subjects of his kingdom hate lies. So you see this big contrast between the two offspring. But what does God hate? Proverbs 6, 16 and 17. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, and number two, a lying tongue. So naturally, the subjects of his kingdom, who are like their heavenly father, hate lies. Psalm 119, 163, I hate and abhor lying, but I love your law. Psalm 120, verse 2, deliver my soul, O Lord, from a lying tongue and deceiving lips. They know that's in them, right? But there's a desire to be free from that. So to the crowd... Listening to this sermon, Jesus is saying, if you lie like this, surrounded by heaven and earth and Jerusalem, your head, etc., you can't be in my kingdom. The subjects of my kingdom don't speak that way. They do what they say. And that is verse 37, which I call kingdom speech. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. If you speak this way as a way of life, swearing by everything, it shows you come from who? The evil one. Beyond these is of evil. Now the word statement there refers to just routine conversation. So let your daily communication be yes, yes, and no, no. If it's any more than that, you simply show the evil source of your heart. Now, on special and serious occasions, swear an oath. Otherwise, you shouldn't have to swear by anything, because why? Your word is your bond. But if your conversation is so suspect every day that you have to make vows to God to convince people that you're telling the truth, Folks, there's something wrong in your life. People ought to be able to trust what you say. So we see that in verse 37, Jesus is merely reemphasizing the Old Testament standard. Now, in the crowd hearing this sermon were four types of people, I believe. And this is generally speaking. You had the scribes and the Pharisees and their followers who were deeply ingrained in the false Judaism of their time. And they were far from Jesus' kingdom. Because remember, Jesus would speak to people and say, oh, you're not far from the kingdom. They were far from the kingdom. There are also those who were weary and burdened by the demands of the false Judaism they had been taught. However, they were still not ready to commit to belief in Jesus. Now, they were closer to the kingdom than the scribes and Pharisees, but they weren't ready to make a commitment. And there were those who were desperate for a righteousness not their own and ready to receive a salvation attained by the grace of God. They were ready to enter into Jesus' kingdom. 
And there were those handful who had already believed and were already living in Jesus' kingdom. Now, where does this passage leave you? Let's bring it home. Well, to the unbelieving in this audience, to be in his kingdom, Jesus demands a righteousness, and you can't be righteous on your own. Now, you may think you tell the truth, but you know the times, and there are many times, that you've colored the truth. You know the times you've, you tell half-truths? You know the times you exaggerate? You know the times you make excuses? You know the times you betray confidence? All of these are a form of lying. You need to come to Jesus Christ, who alone can give you the righteousness you must have, but can't gain on your own. What does it say to believers in this room? Well, it's simple. If you're a Christian, you ought to live and speak like one. This means, since our God is the Father of truth, when we open our mouths, what should, should come out of our mouths? The truth. And on those solemn occasions when we swear by God, we ought to keep our word. On all other occasions, in the daily matter of life, let your yes be yes, and your no be no. You have such character that you don't have to swear because they know you're someone who keeps his promise, who does what he says he or she is going to do. You live like that, you speak like that, then you show, ah, you're in his kingdom because that's what, in terms of our speaking, a subject of his kingdom lives and speaks like. Amen? So obviously, it's a simple application point. Make a conscious effort this week. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Amen? Well, let's pray. Let's close our eyes and bow our heads, and we'll close with a song as well. And also, if you would stand while I'm praying. Heavenly Father, I thank you for giving us your son and for opening our eyes to your words this morning to us. It's so important that when you talk about the words that we speak, that it be something that we pay attention to. Indeed, I pray that our words would be our, our bond. We'd keep our word. That our yes would be yes, our no would be no. And that, Spirit, you would convict us of those times that we are less than honest, that we don't tell the truth, that we just color it in a different way, that we exaggerate, that we kind of tell us little, little lies. We are to be different than the world that is based on lies, and lying is their native tongue. And so, empower us for that very purpose this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.